you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn with me this morning to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 1. As we have been going along in this series, it has very much uh, been like one flying uh, one of, the, uh, one of the, the planes that land on water. And if we imagine each book of the Bible as being a lake, uh, we, have, uh, we have very much landed, touched down, and then took back off. And then landed again, touched down for a few brief moments, and took back off again. And we have done this kind of puddle jumping uh, through the Bible, not giving an exhaustive uh, understanding or theology of each book, but rather seeking to help us get the, the general sense of it. Not just where it comes in the flow of the story of God's redemption, but also helping us to understand uh, its basic message and how it points us to Christ. The, the, the aim being, ultimately, that you would be able to, to land anywhere in your reading of God's Word and have your bearings, have a sense of where you're at uh, and, uh, and where things are headed. Uh, we don't want to be like uh, someone who would uh, be uh, driven out to, to the woods somewhere they've never been before to go camping with a friend and that friend then becomes sick and has to leave and, uh, and you're left wondering where in the world am I at and how do I get home? Uh, so when you turn to Lamentations or you turn to Second Chronicles or Hosea or even Ephesians, we don't want you to be left wondering where in the world am I at and what am I thinking. We want you to be able to know uh, exactly what God is doing and how He desires to speak to you through the text you're looking at. And so Acts is no different as we approach it this morning. And what we will see is that Acts is very much the sequel to the book we looked at last week, the Gospel of Luke. And um, though uh, Luke and Acts have very similar themes, uh, similar aims in terms of them being written, nevertheless, Acts also has its own distinct themes as we see uh, now having looked at Christ and His ministry, the very beginnings and the, uh, the growth of the church that He came to establish. So I would encourage you to follow along as I begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 1 in the book of Acts. Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. To them He presented Himself alive after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and as a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God. 
As we think about uh, this text, it's very much meant to be the introduction to the book of Acts as a whole. And again, several themes will emerge about uh, the church that Jesus is, is seeking to build uh, and, the, and the, the mission that he has given to that church uh, really until he returns. And so as we think about uh, the focus of this mission, uh, what we want to see basically are five themes that, that Luke draws out for us in the book of Acts, uh, five important things to remember as we ourselves today stand uh, very much after the apostles receiving that same commissioning and mission for God. The first thing that we want to, to realize is uh, and understand is the work that continues in our mission, the work that continues in our mission. Luke begins by writing in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. Now Luke here tells us uh, in some ways how he views uh, how his two books are connected. He is not, it is not simply volume one, the story of Jesus Christ, and volume two, the story of Jesus Christ's church. In some sense, that's true. In some sense, that's a very easy way. If you were explaining to someone who, is a, who doesn't know much about the Bible, you could say, yeah, in, in Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, we are told who Jesus is and what he, done, uh, what he does to win salvation and then what his people do in the book of Acts. But it's also more than that. If we go beneath the surface, um, we will see Luke emphasizing something much more. What he sees in his two volumes of Luke and Acts, he sees really two stages of the same ministry of Jesus Christ. He says in his former book, he has written about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And now in Acts, the second volume he is writing, he wants us to understand that Jesus continued to do and teach what those things were, what it looked like after his ascension through the apostles whose sermons and authenticating signs and wonders Luke faithfully records for us. And so what you have is Jesus' ministry on earth exercised personally and publicly, um, followed by His ministry from heaven exercised by the Holy Spirit through His apostles. So in other words, you have not just Jesus' ministry and the church's ministry, you have Jesus' ministry, which He began to do, and now that He has raised back to heaven, He continues to do through His people. Even though, you know, very often the titles we have in, in, in our copies of the Bible are, are traditional and not necessarily the titles given by the biblical authors. Very often most of the books are left without a title and it's the first word that is taken up and, and used. And if we were not worried about being cumbersome, uh, a good title that we would have for this book would not just be the Acts or the Acts of the Apostles or even the Acts of the Holy Spirit as some suggested, but rather something like this, the continuing words and deeds of the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit through His apostles. That's really what the book is seeking to show us. It's not just uh, through His apostles, though, that Jesus continues to work, but our ministry is meant to be the same today. Yes, Jesus did something unique through His apostles upon which He built His church. Nevertheless, the basic ministry that they had is one that continues on today, a continuation of the words and deeds of Jesus himself. Now I say the words and deeds, and deeds because in, at the end of Luke, um, a great summary is, giving, uh, is given of who Jesus was. He is described as a man who was mighty in deed and word before God and all people. 
Now, he was more than that, wasn't he? He was, he was even God of the flesh. But we can't imitate deity, can we? Uh, we, we, we cannot become godlike and imitate God. Nevertheless, what we can do is follow the example of the life we found in Christ, one who honored God and fulfilled his plans in word and in deed. In fact, when you go to Acts chapter 4, one of the things that you see is Peter and John have been brought in for questioning before the religious authorities. And they said, you know, basically, why are you preaching about Jesus? Uh, why are you doing all this? And they basically give the gospel and say, this is why we're preaching about Jesus. And Luke says that they were marveled at them. They were amazed at them. Why? Well, some will say it's because they were illiterate. And they didn't, no, 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 they weren't illiterate. Okay? But they were not formally trained in any rabbinical school. They had not gone off to seminary, as it were, and received a formal education. Nevertheless, in their preaching, it came with authority, clarity, and power. And even though they've not been formally trained, Luke tells us the religious leaders realize this has come, quote, because they had been with Jesus. And so, you know, when, when, I, when I hear that, frankly, I, I get a little convicted because I wonder if someone has been with me, if they have heard me teach, if they have uh, saw me interact with my family, would, would they come away saying, boy, that guy has been with Jesus. And yet that is... That's the very example that is left for us in the apostles, that they very much, because of their faith in Christ, their understanding of Christ, they are able, through the Spirit of Christ, to continue in that work. Although originally spoken to a fellow minister, the wise words of Robert Murray McShane, I think, speak to any Christian. He wrote this, Do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart how diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument, I trust, a tro chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be success. Here's the key. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. What does your life look like? Does your life look like Jesus' life? When someone looks to you and the ministry that you have, is it clearly a continuation of the words and deeds of Jesus or is it something else? Why is it something else if it's something else? If it is a continuation of the words of Jesus and the deeds of Jesus, and if, it, if it is a Christ-like life that you are living, then one of the things that uh, will clearly be evident is what you say about Jesus. And that leads to the second theme that we see, and that is the proclamation that is essential to our mission. The proclamation that is essential to our mission. Again, Luke says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Luke says Jesus is giving commands to the apostles for 40 days. And we're told that these commands come in the context of Jesus talking about the kingdom. Well, what is he talking about? What kind of commands is he giving them? Well, we don't know all of what he said, but we have a pretty good idea. For in verse 8, we are told at least one very specific command. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, you are my witnesses and therefore you will be out doing something with the testimony that you have to give. 
I mean, think about it. Implied in someone being a witness is that they're saying something, right? I mean, wh- I mean what kind of a witness uh, doesn't tell what they have heard? You, wouldn't, you, know, you don't want someone, on, on, uh, if you're on trial, you don't want someone that they bring in to say, I saw what happened, and they say, You don't want that, do you? You want someone who saw what happened and they open their mouth and they say it. They say, this is what I saw and I proclaim to you is the truth, Your Honor. Right? I mean, that's what we want. And so the apostles are called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. They are called to open their mouths and proclaim what they have seen, what they have heard, what they know to be true. Specifically, they are called to proclaim that Jesus died for sinners and was raised back to life as Lord of all things. That those who acknowledge their sinfulness before God will find forgiveness and life in Him. And we see them doing that very thing in the temple courts, in the markets, in homes, in fields, to leaders, to peasants, to friends, to relatives. They proclaim to all they come in contact with the things about Christ that they know to be true. But God goes further than that, doesn't he? And he says very specifically, all this will take place, this witnessing, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now here's one of those times where Christians are well-intentioned, but they miss the point. Okay, even our own denomination uh, has this program called being an Acts 1-8 church. And what they mean by that is that you are witnessing both in your city, you're witnessing in your region, whether that's the state or the country, and whether you're witness, uh, you are involved in witnessing evangelism to the whole world. So basically, what kind of evangelism missions programs do you have? And what they do is obviously look back to this and they say, see, Jerusalem is your city, Judea and Samaria is your state of your country, and to the ends of the earth is the ends of the earth. It's the world. And are you involved in all those areas? And that's helpful, but that's not anything what Jesus is talking about. That's like level 14 on the application grid, okay? Uh, I mean, that's not, how, that's not how the apostles would have understood what Jesus said, and that's not how he would have understood what he is talking about. He is talking about very much what we looked at last week. He is talking theologically about first century social barriers, He is saying, first you are to go and you are to begin with the the old covenant promised people, the Jews, and proclaim to them their Messiah has come. But then you don't stay with the Jews. You go out to those who are, by ethnicity, half Jew, half Gentile, the Samaritans, and you proclaim to them, this is the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of the Samaritans as well. And then you don't stop there. You go beyond any any idea of Judaism to fool out Gentile pagans and you say, Christ is the Savior of all men. That's what he's calling these disciples to do. And in fact, that's exactly what you see happening in the book of Acts. You can actually actually outline the book of Acts by the progress of of the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, moving out to Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. So the disciples have been faithful and obedient to that task. And what do we see? Well, certainly we see that not everyone who heard the gospel believed, not everyone who heard about Christ trusted Him. Nevertheless, the evangelistic proclamation, the witnessing that they gave did bring results. In chapter 2, verse 41, those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 47, same chapter, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
chapter 5, verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Verse uh, 31 of chapter 9, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Chapter 11, verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Do you get the point? The apostles and Christians preach the gospel and people get saved. Imagine that. Preaching, evangelism, missions are not just helpful to the church. They are essential. They are essential because that is the only God-ordained means by which people get saved. Do you understand that? Paul makes it very clear in Romans 10, unless someone opens their mouth and proclaims the gospel, or in theory, someone hands them a Bible and says, read it for yourself, but unless they hear and understand and believe a message about Jesus Christ, they will not be saved. Angels are not coming in visions. Great flaming words are not written in the sky. Jesus... Uh, defying all human logic, says, I am entrusting the mission to my people. Sinful, fallible, weak people. All they must do, though, is proclaim me and people will be saved. And therefore, this is what happens when Christians share the gospel. God moves, people respond, and the church grows. In fact, it's this growth of the church then that we are not only to be about the business of proclaiming the gospel. But we also see uh, in Acts, this becomes a major driving force for the mission, an emphasis on the church. But more than that, a broader emphasis on the kingdom of God as well. This is the third thing we want to see, the kingdom that drives our mission. The kingdom that drives our mission. In verse 6, Luke says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now that's a big question, isn't it? And there's this famous quote from Calvin's commentary where he says this, quote, there is as many errors in this question as words, end quote. I hope no one ever says that about me. <laughs> That's not very flattering, is it? To their defense, though, Jesus had just promised the coming of the Spirit. And knowing the Old Testament, and in fact, again, let's just draw the logical conclusion, what has Jesus just done at the end of Luke? He has taken them through every single passage and shown them how it points to Him. So they've just had their, their mind for 40 days has been filled up with all of this knowledge. And what they know is when God says, I'm sending the Spirit, He also means I'm sending the kingdom. The kingdom has come when the Spirit falls. And so they're saying, if you're, if you're saying the Spirit's going to come, does that mean the kingdom is going to come as well? The problem is, though, Calvin is ultimately right because they ultimately right because they fundamentally misunderstood what the kingdom of God is really about. They have been preoccupied with their own understanding and thus asked an, a wrong-headed question. John Stott says this, the verb, the noun, and the adverb of the sentence all betray doctrinal confusion about the kingdom. For the verb restore shows they were expecting a political and territorial kingdom. The noun Israel, they were expecting a national kingdom. And the adverbial clause at this time that they were expecting its immediate establishment. And yet in all three things, they were wrong about the kingdom. They were wrong about the kingdom. Jesus, though ever patient and mild, rebukes them and corrects them. He says, first of all, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father is fixed by His own authority. I mean, that right there takes off half the books on Christian bookshelves right now. 
You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever browsed that section they call prophecy? I mean, every year a new book comes out, you know, uh, why Jesus is coming back soon because of what's happening in Afghanistan and why Jesus is coming back soon because of what's happening in Washington and why Jesus... And it's like, you know, you've been writing these books for the last 50 years and you've never got one right. Do you not understand? It's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Well, what are you thinking? Just live for now in light of what is coming. Right? I mean, that's what we want to say, right? But Jesus goes on again. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses Where? Not just the Jews, but as we just saw, to all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not building the kind of kingdom that you think I'm building. And I'm certainly not building it on the kind of timetable that you want me to build it on. The disciples were kind of right about when the kingdom came, but they were totally wrong about what it was going to look like. The reality is, yes, in the ministry of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit, God's kingdom had broken into this world and had already begun. Jesus himself says that in the Gospels. The giving of the Spirit moves that kingdom forward even more, empowering God's people to proclaim the gospel ministry. And yet the fullness of the kingdom has not yet come. For in totality, the kingdom of God is essentially what we will have and be in in the new heavens and the new earth. It is the restoration of all things under the complete and sovereign leadership of Jesus Christ in a world completely unstained by sin. That's the, that's the very nature of the kingdom. And that's not now, is it? And yet, and yet, that kingdom is visibly manifested in God's church. The church is not the kingdom, and yet the church is an expression of the kingdom. Where you see the church biblically, growing and thriving, there you can say, look, the kingdom of God is at work and even now coming more and more into this world. Every, every uh, life that is changed, every act of God-given love, every forgiven sin, all of those things are evidences that the kingdom of God is coming and growing. This is why Acts focuses so much on the church itself. You see, we're not just saved as individuals. In some sense, we are. We have to place personal individual faith. It doesn't just come down through the bloodline. But uh, when I say we're not saved as individuals, we're not just saved. And it's like, okay, there we are. We're on our own. No, we are saved out of the world into the people of God. We are saved into God's church, into fellowship with His people. And when you read the book of Acts, you see that this, uh, this idea of the interconnectedness of God's people, the fellowship of Christians in something called church, is essential. It's vital. It's beautiful. This week, as I was thinking about, I was actually reading through Acts, making some notes at a coffee shop, and uh, something just kind of popped into my mind, and I just thought... Um, you know, John, you're not as mature as you think you are. And it was this. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, someone, um, and I don't know if this, is, if, this is, if this is the case, if something's changed, if I misunderstood, but basically as I understood it, the message was um, in order for Emily to be able to pay her bills and go into rehab, she's going to have to give up her apartment. And the question is, you know, what, what's going to happen uh, when she's done with rehab? And the sad thing is I worried about that for a week. And then I'm reading through Acts and the solution, the problem slaps me in the face and I just think, man, why, why were you worried about that? Why were you worried about that? When it's clear what the solution is is right before your eyes. 
Maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, but if you turn over to chapter 4, you look at verse 32, here's what Luke tells us about the Christians. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now think about that for a second. At this point, there are thousands, thousands of Christians in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus say, or what does Luke say? The full number of them were of one heart and soul. That's something only God could bring about. If you've been around church for any length of time, you know what I'm saying. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to any as had need. So here's the reality of the situation. We have a sister who is in need. And, and, it, and assuming that that's true, and, and it may not, the situation, then the, the answer is really quite simple. We, have one, we, have, we basically do one of two things. Either, either some of us give up our vacations, we give up some extra cars that we have or whatever else, we sell it, and we have that money, we pay off her medical bills for her, and she gets to keep her apartment problem solved. Or... We let her pay off the medical bills, and one of us who has the room says, Emily, you just come and you live with me. Isn't that the New Testament model? The sad thing is, though, I know if, that half of you are, are scared out of your wits that I'm going to come to you and ask you to do something like that, aren't you? Why? Because the church doesn't drive our thinking. The kingdom does not drive our thinking. We have failed to learn the reality of the preciousness of people over possessions. We have failed to unencumber ourselves with Western American ideas of individualism and my rights to my property and my stuff and not thinking about the loving nature of God's people that says, if I have something, it belongs to you too if you need it. The reality is, the question rather is, how do we get to that place where we need to think in a New Testament mindset? How do we get to the place where we think biblically so that just like me, you're not sitting in a coffee shop and have to be slapped with the Word of God to see the plain and clear solution that you have read time and time again, but you didn't think about? This is the fourth thing, the power that strengthens us for our mission. It's the Holy Spirit who's going to change us change our thinking, and change our lives. He is the power that strengthens us for our mission. In verses 4 through 5, Luke says, While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Jesus promises the gift of the Spirit to empower them for their ministry. And this marks a dramatic shift between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, in one sense, there is no shift in that people are still sinful. People aren't any less sinful now, nor are they any more sinful. God's regenerating, life-giving spirit is still required for people to have faith in the promises of God and so receive forgiveness and salvation. But what has changed is the way in which God's spirit empowers and indwells in His people. In the Old Testament, you see people who were giving an empowering, a gifting for specific things, sometimes for a specific point of time. You even see King Saul who is given the empowering presence of God, specifically a spirit of leadership to lead the people, and yet because of his sin, God says, I'm taking it back. And so that gifting is then gone. And in fact, the very next chapter, we see it coming on David 
who is anointed king long before he actually fulfills that role. That doesn't happen anymore. Now, every single individual in the New Covenant, every single Christian is, giving, is given the Holy Spirit for empowering of ministry. In that sense, though our gifts are different, we are all on equal footing in terms of having the empowerment of God's Spirit for the building up of His people and the growth of His church. And this is what we see again over and over and over again in the book of Acts, not just the dramatic signs and wonders, not just healings and miracles that take place in the Spirit, but the very example of their lives. Though, though just, just weeks before, men who were cowards and fled into the night are now preaching courageously in front of authorities who have the power of life and death over them. How does that happen? By God's Spirit. His empowering presence. You have people we just read about in chapter 4 loving profoundly. That's not natural, is it? People don't naturally say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sell my car so, you can, so that you can have a place to live. We don't do that. Why? Because we're sinful. But God's Spirit comes in and empowers us, fills us with God's love, and we say, absolutely, how could it be otherwise? We see them working diligently striving after the prize of seeing lost people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The work of the church is led, empowered, and sustained by their reliance on the Holy Spirit. And again, you see that example, we just have to ask, is that, is that how we live? Is that how we do things at this church? You know, one of the things that I hear about all the time and, uh, at conferences and in books is you better watch out for ministry burnout. Where, where you just you, you work and you work and you work and you just basically, pff, you just fizzle out. You, you, you burn up your wick too fast and you crash and burn and you're done. And that happens sometimes, doesn't it? We see that, we see that happen a lot. But I have to, and I'm not saying that it's not a real problem, but my, my question is, how can we see nobody burn out in the New Testament? I mean, you got Paul running around like a crazy man doing the work of 15 people and he never burns out. And it's not, like, it's not like his times in jail were rest and recreation where he's got his, his, you know, his feet up in slippers eating matzo ball soup and enjoying you know, the History Channel or something. Uh, you know, those, those weren't sabbaticals. That's rough. That's rough stuff. What, why is Paul not saying to Timothy, now you watch out for burnout? When instead he is saying, you be a good soldier of Jesus Christ and you press on. You do the work that you were called to do and you stay strong in it. What's the difference? Well, I'll tell you what the difference is, and that's this. We don't rely on God's Spirit. Paul is a man who, who at his best, would, would have said, I can't do this by myself. I need God and His strength to do this. In fact, he learned this lesson uh, well, didn't he, when he had this thorn in the flesh, that whatever it was, we don't know if it was a person or it was a physical ailment, but he, he's pleading with God, you know, I could do so much more ministry if you would take this thing away from me. And God finally comes to him and says, you don't understand. That is there to keep you humble, Paul. That's to keep you from getting a big head. And you understand when you are the weakest, then I am the strongest at work in you. When, when you're not relying on yourself, you're relying on me, then you will accomplish the greatest ministry. What does Paul say? I've learned God's grace is sufficient. And elsewhere in Philippians, what does he say? He says, I've learned to, to live in such a way that I have all my needs met. And I've also learned to live in such a way that I am poor and starving and hungry and sick. And he says what? Everywhere in between, God strengthens me for all those things. 
there is a, there is a real sense in which I think it's true when someone said 95%, 95% of the activity that goes on in evangelical churches can be done without the Holy Spirit. I think that's true probably. Why? Because we put our faith in everything else but God. We say, well, if we just program it right, it'll work. If we just promote it correctly, it'll work. If we just get all the right mechanisms for ministry in place, it will work. People will show up and do things. If you just punch A and pull C and twist D, you will get what you want. And, and the reality I have to ask myself is, <clears throat> if that's really what is sustaining our churches, what, what, is, what is the fruit of that going to be 15 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now? If it's just stuff that we're pumping out on our own strength, A, the quality is not going to be very good, and B, the quantity is not going to be very good, and C, it's not going to last. It's not going to last. Luke is clear, both by command of Christ and by example, that in all that we do, we are to be filled with God's Spirit, both for direction and for sustaining of ministry. The question is, though, how do we do that? How do we do that? It's all well and good, isn't it? To talk about being filled with God's Spirit. And the question is, how do we do that? Well, those of you that have been memorizing Romans 8 should immediately know how to do that. What does Romans 8, 5 say? But those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You want to be filled with God's Spirit? You set your mind on the things of the Spirit. What is that? Well, a, a surprise, surprise, a book that God gave us, inspired cover to cover by the Holy Spirit, directing us to the things of God. I mean, do we forget that it was Jesus Himself who said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? I mean, we, we, you know, I think most of us could, at least me, I'll speak for myself, I can clearly stand to go without bread for a while. But here's the thing, we far too often try and go without this for a while. And when we don't have God's words, we don't have the filling of God's Spirit, and we're out there doing things on our own. And nothing good is going to come from that. A few weeks ago, I was telling someone an account that Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, used to tell of an old Welsh preacher who was speaking at a convention in a small town. The people were assembled at the church, but the preacher had not showed up, and it was getting time to start. And so they sent the maid out to the house to find out where he was. And she came back, and they said, well, where is he? She said, well, he was talking to somebody. I didn't want to bother him. And they're looking around, and they said, there's nobody, there's nobody else that could be there. All of the people that work for the church, the family whose house he's staying, they're all here. Go back and tell them to, to come on. It's time to start. And so she goes again, and she comes back empty-handed. And they said, uh, he's still talking with someone. They said, how do you know he's talking to someone? And she said, I heard him say to the other person, I will not go and preach to those people if you don't come with me. The wise preacher said, well, we better give him a few more minutes. He was talking to God. He was praying, and he was saying, if you don't come with me into that pulpit, I'm not going to preach to them because I don't have anything to give to them. I can read your word, but unless your spirit is empowering me, moving me along, bearing me along, unless he is operating in the minds of the hearers, it's going to fail. It's going to fail. The question is, are we waiting like that or are we rushing ahead, living and serving without him? How much more could we accomplish if, like Paul, we prayed in Galatians 5, that each day we might be filled with God's spirit, that we might not fulfill the sinful desires of our hearts? 
Well, the last thing that we see is this. In all of this, in all of this talk of how to go about the mission, we also finally see the hope that motivates us in our mission, the thing that keeps us moving passionately in the right direction. Luke tells us that Jesus presented himself alive in many days by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. Last week we talked about the importance of Jesus being raised bodily from the dead in His ascension. And, and we talked about the fact that He didn't stay around. And Luke reminds us, doesn't he? Verse 9, as He was saying these things, He was lifted up and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing at Him as He went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Now can you, I mean, you just imagine Jesus is standing there talking and, uh, and, and as he's talking, he begins to, to hold out his hand, much like I do at the end of our service, and bless his disciples, giving them commands. As he does so, he begins to float up into heaven. Uh, I imagine getting smaller and smaller and brighter and brighter until he is, is back behind the clouds and they can't see him anymore. And you can imagine them standing there, just kind of gaping open mouth. Number one, certainly because of a sense of sadness, right? I mean, here, is their, here was their best friend who died who then, as he predicted, came back to life. They were so glad to see him. Uh, you know, you read John's account, and they're out. You know, he's on the beach. They see who it is. They start rowing, and Peter's like, that's not fast enough. And he dives into the water and is swimming as hard as fast as he can to see Jesus soaking well on the beach. I mean, they love the fact that Jesus was there. Their friend was with him. And it's only been 40 days, and he's like, I'm, I'm gone again. And yet also, how much more than sadness, just sheer awe at this man rising up into the cloud, more than a man, their God and Savior, floating away to heaven. I mean, this is before superheroes, folks. I mean, you know, they, they, you know, they had Hercules and those guys, but, you know, uh, they didn't have annual believe a man can fly, Superman movies, you know. And all the kind of technological things that we see now that we, you know, we see this the most wild special effects on television, we just kind of say... Oh, he did that in the other movie. Yeah, that's good. That's nice. You know, it's before that stuff. Here's a man flying back into heaven and they're just kind of standing there. And yet, what has he done? He's given them orders, hasn't he? You go to Jerusalem and you wait and the Spirit is going to come. Well, all of a sudden, here are these two angels. And they're angels. What do angels do? They help people. That's right. And they do so at God's direction, at His command. In fact, there is nothing that they do not hesitate to do when God says to do it. He is the sovereign king over all things, and you dare not even look Him in the face, let alone hesitate when He tells you to do something. And so they're kind of annoyed. I'm sure the disciples, what are you doing standing here? He's told you what to do. Now go. Go to Jerusalem like He said and wait for the Spirit. But more than that, they say also, take heart, be encouraged, because Jesus is coming again. Just as He ascended back into heaven, one day He will descend again for His people to wipe out sin and to bring about the consummation of the angels. Jesus' return is the hope that motivates us in our mission. Everything is moving towards something. History is not cyclical. History is not just going round and round and round. It is an arrow in speeding ever more quickly to its goal of the return of Christ and the consummation of the ages. That should both bring us great hope when we look at the sin around us, and it should also bring us a huge incentive to be about God's business. How do you want to be found when Jesus returns? Working and living for Him or piddling around for yourself? This past week, there have been some amazing events that have served as, in my mind, an amazing symbol of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
For 69 days, miners were trapped under 2,000 feet, over 2,000 feet of rock in the ground in Chile. That's almost the, the size of the Empire State Building. You can imagine that underground. That's how far down they were. They're unable to survive, unable to, unable to escape from their dilemma without help. And yet in order to be saved, one of their miners, Manuel Gonzalez, had to descend in, down into the mine himself, experiencing the heat and the darkness of that hellish place. And then one by one, fit each miner with a protective gear and put him into the capsule that would shoot him back up to the surface and so be rescued. Now, how amazing is that? And it's echoing of the work of Christ himself, who descended from heaven down into the muck and the mire of this sinful world, who took on flesh just like us, experiencing every trial and temptation in the sin-scarred world, giving up his own life that sinners might escape from their even more hopeless condition than just being trapped in a mine, but being enslaved to sin on their way to an eternity of judgment and hell. Yet it's because of Christ's own work that we're not only forgiven, but clothed in the righteousness that we need to be freed from sin and to have life with God. I imagine if you were like me, some of you stayed up to watch the rescue. And some of you, like me, were perhaps even moved to tears to see just the amazing joy on the faces of the miners, the president, the family, as these men were saved after uh, what no one thought was ever going to be them being able to survive. But the sad thing is, many of us will probably watch a scene like that and feel more emotion, more thankfulness to God when we think about our own salvation or the plight of those who live and breathe and have their being apart from any relationship with God today. And the reality is, we can never let any physical trouble in this world take away from us the great urgency that we see in the eternal reality that awaits so many people. Because the mission of Acts is also our mission. The mission given to those 70 disciples and the 12 apostles, that is our task even today. You know, the book of Acts ends in chapter 28, and there's a sense in which there's closure. But there's also a sense in which the story is kind of left open-ended. You're thinking, Luke, you could have you wrote some more chapters. What, you know, what's happening? Well, we don't know, honestly, why Luke ended where he did. But I think in some way, Luke clearly knows that, that the story is not finished in chapter 28. Almost immediately, chapter 29 is being written in the mind of God in the pages of history. Even to this very day, as the mission of the church continues and advances, we are Acts chapter 29 even here today. Therefore, we must continue the words and deeds of Christ as we proclaim salvation to sinners, lovingly building His church through the proclamation of the gospel by the power of the, of the Spirit from this city and to the ends of the earth. Father, we are thankful that we are the inheritors of uh, such an amazing message and a glorious mission. Father, again, we are humbled that You would choose us to be ones that would bring salvation to sinners. God, but we don't do so because we are clever, because we are uh, intelligent or have all the right resources. Father, we do so because we have life with you and we have the message that brings life, the gospel. Father, as we think about the context in which the gospel lives and thrives and goes forward towards sinners as we read Acts, Father, may you continually work in our minds and hearts that this church would look like that kind of a church. That, God, we would not only be passionate and caring and loving for one another, but about sinners and their need to hear the gospel. 
Father, only you can do this by the continual proclamation of your word and its transforming effects in our hearts by your spirit. God, may you hasten that process all the more. For the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.